kids, you can go in and slide to the back with our Redemption Kids volunteers. If you're new here today with a child and you haven't checked them in, just follow the flow of kids to the very top, and one of our volunteers will get you squared away um, in Redemption Kids. If you've got a copy of God's Word, or if you're using your phone or device, turn that on. We're going to be in Acts chapter 9 today. If you've got one of the Bibles we provide, that's on page 900. And 17, page 917. As you turn there, I also want to make sure that everybody received a worship guide with uh, one of these Who Was My Neighbor cards. So I've got an, some ushers helping me out. If you just, if you didn't receive one of these, raise your hand. We want to make sure everybody gets one of these. Who is my neighbor card? Just, we got some down here, Jason, right down front here. Raise your hand. So, Jason can make sure you get one of these. If you have yours from last week, go ahead and pull that out as, as Jason is passing those out. Here's what I want us to do. We're back in our Acts series, and, and our focus these few weeks is on our streets. As we see stories of transformation happen in the early church. We want to be thinking, who are the people that God has providentially, sovereignly placed in our lives? And, and how can we own and leverage those relationships for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel? So here's what I want you to do. Everybody has one of those cards. If you haven't filled one out yet, I want you to go ahead and just start filling this in. You'll see, just explaining what this is, Pretend that you're in the middle. And I know everybody's housing arrangements are different. You may be in an apartment. You may be in a dorm. You may be in a single family, a multifamily. So there may be people actually above you or below you. Sorry that, you know, it's hard to, to display all of that in our diagram. But just picture you in the middle. Who are the neighbors that are around you? Go ahead and start filling those in. You'll see Tanner walked us through last week three different levels of getting to actually meet your neighbors and engage them with the gospel. Level, level one is just knowing their name. So moving from them being a stranger to knowing, hey, what's their name that you could call and say, hey, what's happening, Bill? What's happening, Chris? Um, the second level is just simple information, just moving beyond just knowing their name to an acquaintance. And then the third level is actually getting below the surface and developing a relationship uh, with the hopes and prayer that we're able to speak the gospel and truth into someone's life. Now keep filling those out. I'm, I'm going to come back to these here in a second. Let me, let me set the stage for where we're headed today. So in Acts, we're going to spend most of our time in Acts 9, um, but I want to jump back to Acts 1 real quick. Acts 1 verse 8. It sets the theme, the tone for this whole book. In Acts 1 8, many of you guys know this verse at the very beginning. Jesus says this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is setting the paradigm for this whole book. We see for the most part in these first few chapters of Acts, it's been the gospel spreading in Jerusalem. Acts 2, the Spirit comes. We see Peter preach at Pentecost. We see thousands come to faith in Jesus, and then we see them going about living in gospel communities, sharing their faith. Last week, fast-forwarding all the way up, Tanner walked us through Acts chapter 8. And I want us to just fast-forward there. Acts chapter 8, 
Look at verse 1. This is right after Stephen was stoned and martyred for his faith in Jesus. It says this, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Here's what's going on. God's plan for the gospel is that the nations would worship. It started in Jerusalem. You'll you'll be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. They were staying in Jerusalem. So sovereignly, God was over this persecution and even martyrdom to see the disciples spread out of Jerusalem and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. There are three words that I love in those few verses. Except... The apostles. Where were the apostles? They're in Jerusalem. Who did we see last week as spreading to gospel heading to the ends of the earth? It's just everyday followers of Jesus like you and I. You guys see that? We we saw last week, we saw that um, the gospel was proclaimed in Samaria. We looked at the story of the Simon the Magician. And then we see the gospel proclaimed to an Ethiopian eunuch who professes faith in Christ. The stage is being set for Acts 9 when Paul, Saul, steps onto the scene to see the gospel taken to the ends of the earth. Now before we jump into Acts 9, I want you to look at this here with me for a second. As you look at your neighbors, who are the Saul's in your neighborhood? Who are the people that you look at here and in your gut it's like, I don't know how that person would ever profess faith in Jesus. I mean, that's, that's really Saul, right? He's standing there, and, and Stephen's being killed. He's the one, jump forward. Go, go back here in Acts 8. In Acts 8, verse 3, it says, But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Jump ahead now to chapter 9, Acts 9, beginning in verse 1. The story is still the same, but Saul, still breathing threats, and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Who is the Saul? Who's that person that you've stopped praying for? Because you haven't seen progress or movement. Who's the person that you haven't even started praying for? Because in your gut, that person is too far from God. Here's the point I want us to see today, guys, as we look at our streets. God can save anyone on your street. And it's not our responsibility to write anyone off. Our responsibility is to seek the glory of God, to pray for them, and let God do his work. That's what we're going to see 
in this story today. So going back to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Here's what we see here. We see Saul headed off to Damascus. Just to kind of set your geographical parameters there, that was roughly 135 miles north, um, northeast of Jerusalem. Think about it, a trip from here to just north of Portland, Augusta, Maine. You know, you pass Holy Donuts and you keep heading on up that way. It's probably like a six-day journey. Check this out, though. This is the first city outside of Israel where it is noted that there were Christians. So just in the progress of Acts, we've seen it go from Jerusalem, last week, Samaria, and Ethiopian eunuch. Now it's going out to Damascus. What Saul is doing, he's heard of this. We're not told how the gospel is made it to Damascus, but he's headed there to stop the advancement of the gospel. We've got this commission of Jesus, go to the ends of the earth. Saul has heard about the gospel spreading, and he is there to stop it. That's pretty clear in what we see in verses 1 and 2. Now let me pick up beginning in verse 3. In chapter 9 it says this, Now as Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And let me just give a few reflections as we think of these verses. The first one is this. Who was Saul persecuting? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to hear this. When people persecute you, don't take that as a personal attack. What we see here is Jesus lining up with the church, and he's saying, when they persecute you, they persecute me. And I don't miss that. Oftentimes, it's tempting for us, even as we think about engaging in our streets, to take this personal. Like, man, I'm afraid of somebody. It's a personal attack. Look, nobody's attacking you. They're attacking the King Jesus. And he will take notice. Another point that we see here is we see verse 7 as a parenthetical remark. And the point of this is to prove that what happened in Saul wasn't just something of his own imagination. Now, what's it say here in verse 7? It says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, it's pretty clear. Who did Saul have an encounter with? 
It was Jesus. I'm going to come back to this point in a little bit. The, the people that were with him did not know it was Jesus, but there was clearly something objective that happened. It wasn't just something going on in Saul's imagination. Something really happened that they could verify. Yeah, I mean, we, we did not know whose voice it was, but something happened. And then look at verses 8 and 9. Saul rises from the ground, and he's blind. And it says he does not eat or drink for three days. Now, it's clear why he would need to be led by hand to, uh, to Damascus, because he couldn't see. But why didn't he eat or drink? There was nothing physically prohibiting him from eating or drinking. Let me just jump ahead real quick. Let's, go, let's start reading in verse 10. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise, go out to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. What's Saul doing? He's praying. Now, most likely, here's what's going on. Saul had an encounter with the glorious resurrected Jesus, and he couldn't get over that. He's fasting. He's reflecting. The reason God blinded him and the reason he's fasting and, and not eating is he is reflecting on what's just happened on, on who Jesus is and the implications for his life and what God's going to do through him. There was no doubt that he was reflecting on the reality of seeing the strength of God's glory in Jesus. It put him on the ground and it blinded him. Going on, we move from the story of, of God sovereignly working in Saul's life to this guy named Ananias. Look, the main character of this story is God. You guys see that? It's what God's doing in Saul's life. It's what God's doing in Ananias' life. It says here that the Lord said to him in a vision. So God's working in what, what's going on in Saul. Then he goes to this man, Ananias. He gives him a vision. I love the way Ananias responds. Here am I, Lord. We see this echoing many of the prophets in the Old Testament and how they responded to God when he reached out to them. The Lord said to him in verse 12, verse 11, rise and go to the street called Straight. This was no ordinary vision. Do you notice the detail here? Look at these details. He gives them the exact specific name of the street that you're going to go to called Straight. Hey, and as a sidebar here, that street still exists today and is one of the world's oldest continually occupied streets. Okay, We're not just talking about that this is historical. Go look that up. He tells them the street name. He tells them the house of Judas. And he says, you're going to look for a, a man of Tarsus named Saul, and he's going to be praying. Pretty clear who Ananias was to go and look for. Verse 12, and it says, And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Separate, 
we're even told that the Lord tells Ananias, I've actually told Saul that you're coming and you're gonna lay hands on him and he's gonna regain his sight. Do you guys see God's work? Now look how Ananias responds, verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Did any of you guys ever have a response like that as you look at some of the people on your streets? God, God are you, you sure you want me to go like this guy, this lady? Do you, do you know them? You, you know about them, right, God? Like, are you sure? Look what God says, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go. That's enough right there, right? I mean, if God says go, let's go. But he continues, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. One commentator, John Paul Hill, he says, this verse is programmatic for the rest of Acts. He says, the church's Um, chapters 13 to 28 depict Paul's mission in which he indeed witnessed before the Gentiles, the Jewish king Agrippa, and regularly in the synagogues to the sons of Israel. We're we're setting the stage here for what Saul's going to do and this gospel go to the ends of the earth. And then he continues in verse 16. God says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Indeed, he will suffer. Paul suffered much. The persecutor becomes the persecuted, and one day he is going to face a martyr's death like many of these early disciples. So what does Ananias do? Let's keep reading verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. You hear that? Brother Saul, there's transformation that's going on. Not Saul the persecutor, brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Look, there's two really significant truths that I don't want you to miss here. The first one is this. Ananias is the first non-apostle to lay hands on someone and be a mediator of the Spirit of God. Why is that significant? Daryl Bach, commentator on Acts, says this. The church's ministry is expanding in ways that mean non-apostles will do important work. Do you remember the phrase in Acts 8.1? Everyone except the apostles. 
we are going to see this mission explode to the ends of the earth. And it's not primarily the apostles. It's the disciples who are taking the gospel and proclaiming Jesus. It's not just pastors, leaders in the church. It is all disciples. This great commission was given for all of us. There's a second thing that's significant. This is the first time Luke has indicated the Spirit's coming outside of Israel. And this is foreshadowing the work that Saul is going to do in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. So what happens? Ananias goes, he lays hands, and verse 18 says this, and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. The, this, this description here symbolizes that his spiritual blindness has been overcome. This is the power of God to save anyone. Let me just give you a quick little sidebar here. You may have heard me slip up at times talking about Saul and Paul. It's often said, hey, when Paul... When, when Saul was converted, his name was changed to Saul. But that's not necessarily the case. In fact, you don't see the word Paul show up until Acts 13. What's most likely is that Paul had two names. His Hebrew Jewish name was Saul, and his Roman name was Paul. And so we particularly see the use of Paul tied to him taking the gospel out of Jerusalem, but to the ends of the earth. And so we see Paul's name used in that way. He's changed. He is, his eyesight is regained, and it says he arose and was baptized. Again, not going to linger here long, but this is the pattern we see in Acts. Somebody professes faith in Jesus. What's the very next step they do? They get baptized. We just saw that with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. If you're here today and you're saying, I am a follower of Jesus, and you haven't gone public in baptism, that, that's following the pattern of the New Testament and the command of Jesus. Go make disciples, baptize them. We'd love to help you take that next step at Redemption Hill. Now, here's what I want to do in the rest of our time. In light of this point that God can save anyone on your street, I want to highlight three significant truths that I see here that I think if, if we will wrap our minds around, if we will embrace and we will believe, it will turn Medford and greater Boston upside down. And the first one is this. God is sovereign and powerful. Last week, Tanner introduced this concept. And he said this, God is sovereign over your streets. I mean, it's written all over Acts 9 here. We see God's the one who's initiating in Saul's life. We see God who's the one who gives the vision to Ananias. We see God who's the one that gives another vision to Saul and says, this man Ananias, he's coming. Look out for him. He's going to lay hands on this. This is the sovereign work of God. Get this. The people who live on your street are not there by accident. We saw that last week. Your neighbor lives down the street because God put them there. 
and God has put you there for them. It's no accident the people you run into, the people that you know. Last week, Tanner challenged us. He said, man, how do you hear God's voice? Who do you just like keep bumping into? Like maybe God is tapping you on the shoulder and saying, that person now, go. When you get this, it transforms the way you pray for your day and it transforms the way you view perceived interruptions. Because you see, these interruptions viewed within the sovereignty of God are a part of his sovereign plan to lead you to people he's working in. How frequent maybe do we miss these divine interruptions because we don't see and hand over and pray and seek the sovereign hand of God over every minute detail of our day. God is sovereign, but he's also powerful. Do you realize what just happened here? God physically blinded him. And then he removed these scales so that he might see. So as we talk about people responding to Jesus, oftentimes we'll talk about them being blinded to see who God is. Or Paul says in Ephesians, you once were dead. So either being blinded or deadness. And you know what this does for us? It reminds us, I love, we, we've mentioned an evangelism book called Rico Tice, Honest Evangelism. He says this. He says, neither you nor I are spiritual eye surgeons. I'm not a spiritual eye surgeon. I can't take a blind person and make them see. And I would add to that, neither are we spiritual heart surgeons. I can't make a, a dead person come to life. So what that could tempt me to do is throw my hands up and give up about my street. But that's not the case. Paul, reflecting on this in 2 Corinthians 4. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that this this Acts 9 conversion experience is influenced in his reflection here. I've got it on the screen here. I'm going to read through that. It says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You guys see that blindness there? But what does Paul do? That doesn't lead him to give up. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. We proclaim Jesus. And what does God do? Verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When did God say, let there be light? It's okay to answer. You can talk back to me. When did he say that? In the beginning. What happened when he said that? And there was light. The power of God's spirit recreated your heart 
so that you could see who Jesus is. Listen to this. It took the power necessary to make the stars to do that. Here's the good news. God has that power. You look at your neighbor and you see blindness, but we look here and we see power. God is the one who turns the lights on and opens blind eyes. So let me just do some reflection here with me for a second. Is God sovereign over your neighbors? Yes. Is God powerful enough to save them? The same God who said, let there be light and there was light. Let me just ask you this. Do you think that God can say to the darkened heart and blinded eyes of your neighbor, let there be light and there be light? I heard a couple people. Let me ask that again. Do you believe that God can say to the darkened heart and blinded eyes of your neighbor, let there be light, and the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ can go on full display? Thank you. This is the foundation of our mission. God is sovereign and God is powerful. And so Rico Tice in his book concludes this, the Spirit's power should give us confidence to cross the office or the street or the front room and tell someone about Jesus. The gospel is so powerful because it's the power of God to open blind eyes and bring faith. That's the first thing that I want you to see in Acts 9. God is powerful and he's sovereign. The second thing that I want you to see, Jesus is alive and glorious. Did you hear me? Jesus Is Jesus alive? Yes, Jesus is alive and glorious. What happened with Saul is that he saw the full glory of the resurrected Jesus. Go back to verse three. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground. Why is he falling to the ground? The light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ was on full display for him. He's on his face. Who are you, Lord? This question in verse five, it's not a Christological confession, but what it's doing is he realizes that what he's experienced right here is something heavenly. He doesn't know at this point that it's Jesus, but he knows it is something that he's on his face. And how does Jesus respond? I am Jesus. Imagine those words. Why was Paul headed to Damascus? He was headed there to stop and thwart the advancement of the gospel, which says this, Jesus is alive. And on that road, he meets Jesus. John Polhill, he describes it this way. Imagine how those words must have impacted the zealous persecutor. 
he had sought to stamp out the Christians for their proclamation of a dead Messiah. How it must have cut Paul to the quick. The very one he's, he's trying to cut out reveals to him as alive. When you hear Paul, Saul, I say Paul because I'm thinking of his letters throughout the New Testament, and so I'm going back and forth. If you're new to Jesus and Christianity, Saul we see um, at different times called Paul, particularly in, in the letters in the New Testament. It's Paul. This is the same guy. When he shares what changed his life, he points back and he says it was Jesus. I mean, look at these. I got a few up here on the screen for us. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Look at this in Galatians 1, 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, remember this is the chapter where, where Paul lays out the gospel. I shared with you the gospel, what was of most importance. Jesus died and then he rose from the dead and he goes on down and he says in verse eight, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. How do you explain what happened in Saul's life? Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive and Jesus is glorious and this changes everything. The resurrection is, is crucial. It's the linchpin of Christianity. That's why Paul says, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, your faith is in vain, and what I'm doing is completely in vain. Let's drink and be merry. Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, has a chapter on the resurrection. If you're here today, you're just kind of wrestling through, you're listening, you're trying to learn about who Jesus is, I would just challenge you, you've got to wrestle with the resurrection, not just from a theological standpoint. Um, Tim Keller talks about the, the great work N.T. Wright has done, really helping us wrestle with the historical reality of the resurrection. He says this, I got on the screen for us. He says, for the skeptic, it's not simply to dismiss the Christian teaching of the resurrection by just saying it couldn't have happened. He or she must face and answer all of these historical questions. The first one he says is this. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly with such power? I mean, what have we seen in Acts? What happened in these disciples' lives? They deserted Jesus when he's arrested. And now we're seeing them willing to go be put in jail and be persecuted. There's got to be something there to the resurrection. What about Saul? Like, how do we explain this just, just crazy transformation? He saw the risen Jesus. Jesus must be alive. Uh, the other one he says is this. No other band of Messianic followers in that era concluded their leader was raised from the dead. Why did this group do so? It's not like this was the cool thing to do. Another one, he says, no group of Jews ever worshipped a human being as God. What led them to do it? Another one, Jesus did not believe in divine, Jews did not believe in divine men or individual resurrections. What changed their worldview virtually overnight? And then finally, 
How do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades and publicly maintained their testimony, eventually giving their lives for this belief? So I would say, hey, if you're here and and you're just wrestling through like Christianity and and whether it's true, like everybody's got to wrestle with the historical realities of, of what happened here in the early church. To me, the solution is Jesus is alive. He really rose from the dead. And if that is the case, it changes everything. Now let me make this personal for you. What happened in Saul's life? Let's jump on down. Look at verse 19. I'm going to read through this and I'm going to press in here for a second. So he was baptized, taking food, he was strengthened. It continues. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And then what? Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief's priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When it says there, but Saul increased all the more in strength, it's not necessarily talking about physical strength. What he's talking about here is he became more and more able to proclaim and persuade people that Jesus was the Christ. He grew in that. He strengthened in that. But what's astounding here is that as soon as this transformation happened, what is he doing immediately? Immediately he proclaimed Jesus. Let me ask you this. Is he doing this out of guilt? No way. Hey, my goal today here is not to guilt you into, man, you should probably go tell somebody about Jesus. Because that's that's not gospel motivated and it's not sustainable. But you know what is? For you to see the full glory of Jesus. Like the, for, for you to be consumed with the treasure of Christ, the greatness of Christ. How could you not tell somebody about Jesus? That's what's going on. He's met Jesus and the natural implication is I gotta go tell people because this changes everything. The more glorious Jesus becomes to you, the more you see him clearly for who he is through his word, his work in and through you, the more you will long for his glory to spread to the ends of the earth. And we see this continue. Let me keep reading in verse 23. It says, when many days had passed. Let me just give a side note here. There's a good chunk of time and years that are built into Paul's Saul's conversion and then what we see later on in his letters. We see some of this filled in in the first chapter of Galatians. For the sake of time, I don't have time to unpack that entire timeline, but just giving you a heads up. Luke's purpose here in Acts was not detailing all of that out, but getting us to the point of his mission going to the ends of the earth. But verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night, led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. The irony here is that Paul, Saul, went to Damascus to persecute, and now he's being the one that's being forced out. 
He's being persecuted. So they get him out of there, verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem. He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him in, brought him to the apostles, and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. One of the things that characterized Jesus' ministry was bold proclamation of Jesus. That ought to be what we strive to imitate. Let's continue. Verse 29. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Tarsus. Pause. At the end of chapter 9, we see Saul being sent to Tarsus. We're not told exactly why Tarsus, um, but we're going to pick this up next week and see what God continues to do to see this gospel spread to the ends of the earth. Here's what I want to do now. We've seen how God changed his life, and he went to proclaiming Jesus. I want you to think back at your neighbors. The more glorious Jesus becomes to you, the more you will long for him to be adored even in those neighbors who are far from Jesus. You see, it's the glory of Jesus that's, how could we keep this to ourselves? But when you see the glory of God, you want to see everybody worship. I mean, that's what we were created for, to worship him. It's a, we were all created to make much of him. We want to invite others into this worship. And so as I look at my neighbors, what's driving me is I'm so passionate about the glory of Jesus that I want to see them bring him glory. So here's the deal. God is the one who turns the lights on and open eyes. We are the ones who proclaim Jesus. Going back to that 2 Corinthians 4 passage, sandwiched in between being blinded and God opening eyes, he says, and what we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord. That is our role. We talk about Jesus. We plead with people to respond to Jesus. God opens eyes. So we see God is sovereign and powerful. We see Jesus is alive and glorious. And finally, we see the Spirit is actively empowering the church's growth. Verse 31, we conclude here. So the church, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. There's one thing I want to draw your attention to here. Verse 31, so the church, singular. Often in Acts, what we see is churches, there were churches in this city, or it's, it's the plural churches. But here we're seeing the church universal being described as one community in these different regions. But here's the deal. Even in spite of the persecution that was going on, look at what it says. The church had peace and was being built up. What did Acts 1.8 say? Wait here. 
You're gonna receive power from the Holy Spirit and you're gonna be my witnesses. What's driving this mission is God is sovereignly over it and the Spirit is working in believers to drive this mission to the ends of the earth. There is no doubt that it is the work of the Spirit that is bringing this peace, that's building up, that's leading to them walking in the fear of the Lord. They've got the comfort of the Holy Spirit and I love these two words. What happened to the church? It multiplied. How cool would it be to just pray, God, would you make this true of Redemption Hill Church? Would we be characterized by walking in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and that God would multiply. This is a passive here. This is highlighting that God is doing this work. It is increasing in numbers. This is one of those summary statements. I just want to pause back real quick. Go back to chapter 6 real quick. Chapter 6, verse 7. This was the last summary statement we saw. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. We see it starting in Jerusalem. It's multiplying. Now by the end of 9 here in verse 31, we see it multiplying, and it's not just Jerusalem. It's all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. And Saul now has been changed, and we ha- we're ready right on the cusp here to see the church multiply to the ends of the earth. You know what? This same spirit that was at work in the early church is at work in your street right now. It's at work in you and it's at work in your neighbors. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says, you can't see the wind referring to the work of the Spirit, but what can you see? You can see its effects. I look at the trees and I see them waving and bending and I see, I know there's wind. I can't see the wind, but I can see the work of the Spirit. Here's the deal. I don't know where God's Spirit is working. I know he's working. My responsibility is to trust that God is sovereignly working in this city. He's powerful to save anyone on my street and for me to go and preach Jesus. And so Paul, when he's summarizing this conversion experience in one of his letters to Timothy, he says this. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If God can save Paul, he can save anyone on your street. But let me tell you more. That verse right there will get you out of bed. You need motivation to get out of bed tomorrow? Read this. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And you know why he hasn't returned yet? Because his mission isn't complete. We've been given a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. When that is done, Jesus will return. But he hasn't come back yet. So you know what? He's still got a mission. He's still saving sinners. My prayer is that, who knows, maybe even today a sinner steps into saving faith in Jesus. Jesus, if that's you today, look to Jesus, repent of your sin and believe. But maybe this week, maybe next week, maybe your neighborhood, I can't wait to celebrate the next neighbor who's coming to faith in Jesus. Anybody with me? 
So I'll close with three questions. Who was God prompting you to share Jesus with? God sent Ananias to Saul. Second, where is God sending you to share Jesus? God sent Ananias to the house of Judas. God sending Paul, Saul, as a chosen instrument to the Gentiles. And then finally, will you respond today in eagerness to obey, saying, here am I. Let's pray. Father, you are sovereign and powerful. You did such a work in each of our lives. God, we stand there with Saul. As sinners saved by grace, we don't stand above anybody on our streets. We are in much in need of your grace, even as we extend that same grace to our neighbors. God, we pray. God, I, I don't know the names on these streets, but God, I, I know on my street there's, there's some people that, I, God, it would take you saying, let there be light. God, would you, God, I, would you forgive me of my lack of faith in your power? God, too often I look at the power of John Chastine and I look at that person and say, there's no way. But what I do is I remove you out of the equation. God, would you remind me, wake me up tomorrow, not just knowing that you came to save sinners, but you're the very one who spoke the stars into existence and that you can speak into that darkened heart. God, help me to be faithful. God, I need your help. God, I'm not great at this. I want to grow in proclaiming Jesus. God, may the glory of Christ be so real to me this week that I can't but help but speak of what I've seen and what I've heard. God, do that for all of us. God, we need your help. Spirit, be powerfully at work in us. Give us courage. Give us boldness. God, bring new life this week to Boston. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.